leadership for us or against us, even when we disagree. So in light, in light of all that, I'm just going to pray for us, then we're going to dive in. Dear Lord, just thank you so much for your word, and I just pray that as we wrestle with this part of Scripture, that you would just help us to see how much you care for us, Lord, that you are for us and not against us. Help us just, to, yeah, just speak to us through your word, Lord, and just help us to, yeah, really clearly think through these issues, Lord, and what it looks like to follow leadership well. Amen. So let's dive in. I've broken tonight up into three parts. Uh, there's the backstory, uh, Saul's story, and our story. So backstory, we've looked at a lot of Bible. There is 23 chapters of narrative, Old Testament narrative, before we look at tonight. So for those of us who haven't been on the journey before, I just want to recap that backstory. Uh, Secondly, I want us to look at the current story, that's Saul's story. I want us to try and read and understand this story. Like it's It's so weird in parts, and I just want us to try and understand it as Christian scripture. And then finally, I want us to try and, try and figure out, what do we do with this? I want to try and apply it as best I can um, to, to our story, our situation today. So backstory. Here's what we need to know. Saul was meant to be God's anointed one. It's really important to, to understand anything tonight. You need to understand that Saul was meant to be God's anointed one. But, but what is an anointed one? Like, that's such an archaic, weird word. I don't go around saying, you're an anointed one, you're an anointed one. No, that's weird. Um, I think 1 Samuel 10 is probably our best definition of an anointed one. We read in 1 Samuel 10, Samuel, uh, who was God's spokesperson, he took a flask of olive oil and he poured it on Saul's head. He, like, symbolically anointed him. That, that's what he did. And, and, and kissed him on the head and saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? The root word for anoint in Hebrew is Messiah or Messiah. That's, that's where we get that idea, that word Messiah. Here we see that God's anointed one, his Messiah, is firstly chosen and called for a task. He's chosen by God, called by God for a task, and then he's called to rule over, to actually, the word is actually to be a prince over God's inheritance. God's Messiah, God's anointed one, I'm going to keep using those terms interchangeably. It's a specific task, a task to be a prince or ruler over God's inheritance, but under God. God's Messiah, in in Old Testament times, at, at this point in God's plan, he wasn't meant to be like a king or anything like that. He was meant to be a faithful ruler under God. So one, so Saul was meant to be the anointed one, but two... God's people wanted Saul to be a king, and Saul bought into it. Initially, he didn't. We saw he was actually pretty hesitant. We saw him hiding among some apples or something, or supplies. I don't, I don't know what it was, but he was hiding. We saw he didn't want this. But then he goes from one extreme to another, and he starts ruling on his own terms as a sovereign king, just like the nations around Israel, rather than as God's chosen Messiah. So Saul was meant to be an anointed one, God's people wanted a king and Saul bought into it. And so three, God chose someone else. What Saul didn't understand is that God was never reliant upon Saul. It's true for us today, guys. Like God is never reliant upon us. God, in his graciousness, decided to use Saul for his purposes. He allowed him to be part of his incredible plan. Yet Saul thought that meant God needed him. Saul thought, actually, uh, not enough. 
I not only need to be part of your plan, God, I need to be God. I need to be the centerpiece. And so because of this, God chooses someone else. He chose this guy called David. In 1 Samuel 16, we read that Samuel, uh, the same person, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So God chose someone else. And that's where we end up with our pickle of a situation here. So let's dive into the actual passage, into Saul's story. What we see here is that Saul, right up front, rejects God's anointed one, rejects God's Messiah, and wants to set himself up as a king. So we read, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, set out to look for David and his men near Crags of the Wild Goats. Imagine if you lived off, sorry, side, uh, number four, Crags of the Wild Goats. Like, what a place. Like, Old Testament address. I don't know. Pretty wild, I thought. Um, Let's <laughs> just put the goat because it was, it was cute. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so when it says Saul took 3,000 men and set out to look for him, that is a very polite way of saying Saul wants to kill David. Saul is intent on killing David. Saul rejects the one God has chosen to rule. He rejects him, gathers a group of followers, and is right, right, let's do this. Let's go get him. So Saul rejects God's anointed one, and then to add insult to injury, God's people try to lead the anointed one. And just before we get there, we read, we read this weird verse, like Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and there was a cave there, and Saul went in to do his business. And I actually think it's okay to laugh here, actually, because I think like, as we're reading narrative, there's actually an element of comedy here. You have, the, you have this noble image of a king marshalling 3,000 men after defeating the Philistines to go and slay his opponent, uh, but first he's really got to go. Like, that's, that's kind of what I think like, Old Testament narrative is trying to get here. There's something incredibly tragic about this guy called Saul. There's something incredibly tragic when human beings decide they've got a better plan than God. And, and we keep reading on that David and his men were far back in the cave, and then the men said, this is the day, David, you can take out Saul. They even have the nerve to take God's words and twist them and quote them back at David. They essentially appeal to their version of the Bible and say, you know, you know when the Lord said to you, you know when God said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. That's the time. It's now. Go do it. And I mean, like today, we'd never twist the Bible. We'd never do anything like that. Would Sorry, that was too sarcastic. But, but what, what's interesting, and I just want to pause here, we see the followers trying to tell the Messiah what to do. We see followers twisting God's word to fit their own agenda. And this is just a really interesting fact that when you read 1 Samuel, it just keeps popping up. The followers, the people of Israel, keep telling their leaders, keep trying to tell God, keep trying to tell his anointed one what to do. I know we're not in application yet, but there is surely something there for us. So, we, so today we were seeing Saul reject God's anointed one. God's people try to lead the anointed one. And then God's anointed one, he, he, he takes him out. Yeah, that's what do, get him in the back. That's what we heard about from Shane last week. Still got that graphic image of Shane stabbing anyway. Uh, so God's anointed one refuses, though, to take revenge. And so then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David has an opportunity to kill him, but instead just cuts off a bit of his robe and moves on. 
And this sounds pretty weird. Once again, you might think, is David just the sneakiest dude in the world and Saul didn't look down? Like, how does this work? Like, presumably Saul wasn't wearing his robe at the time. That's, that's, why that's how I understand it. But enough about the mechanics of how it worked. More importantly, what we're mo- meant to pick up on in this backstory, in this, is the backstory. We're meant to be reminded of when Samuel, God's spokesperson, came to Saul and said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. And so what we're seeing here again is Saul in his tragicness, Saul in his most vulnerable, is that the more he tries to make himself a king, the more God's kingdom, the more God's inheritance, the more the right to be part of God's plan is taken from him. It was never his to begin with, but with every turn of the page, we see, as Shane said last week, Saul clutching on harder and harder, and God saying, no, my plans are better. You're not, you have not been a faithful steward. So we see Saul reject God's anointed one, wants to set himself up as king. God's people try to tell the anointed one what to do, and that God's Messiah refuses to take revenge, and finally, we see how everything has gone so terribly, terribly wrong. We see that Saul has bought into the lie that God's Messiah is against him, not for him. We read that David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king, he still respects him. When Saul looked down behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen to people when they say David is bent on harming you? Why do you listen to people when they say David is bent on harming you? And there is so much more to this passage. There's so much there. But this is where I want us to really pause tonight. I really encourage you to look at the rest in your life groups, Bible studies. But I think we see here how Saul has gone and got it all so, so wrong. He thinks David is against him. He thinks God's Messiah is against him, not for him. He thinks that if he follows David, if he submits to David, then David will destroy his life. Yet what we are seeing playing out across the whole story of 1 Samuel is that Saul is destroying his own life. And spoiler alert, the the story actually does end with Saul's pride reaching such an intensity He starts a war he was destined to lose and ends up losing his own life. Saul bought into the lie that God's Messiah is against him, not for him. So we've heard the backstory, we've heard Saul's story, and now we come to our story. How does this part of the Bible, a book telling a story about two men 3,000 years ago, influence our story today? For me, heading to work or school tomorrow, like what, what should we be taking away from this? Well, I, I think in many ways, 6 p.m., Saul's story is our story. We need to understand that the Bible portrays David as a shadow, a type, an imperfect type. Absolutely, David is far from perfect of who Jesus would come to be. David is the imperfect Old Testament promise of who Jesus would come to be. And so I think it's legit for us to apply it like this. Actually, we have all rejected God's anointed one. All of us, just like Saul. All of us have set ourselves up as rulers. 
We have all tried to tell Jesus what to do one way or another, just like David's followers. All of us, the fundamental mistake we as humans continue to make in our relationship with God is that we keep believing the lie that God is against us and not for us. We see it right back in Genesis 3. That's how this all started. When, when Satan tempted Eve and said, you know that fruit that God said you couldn't eat because you would die? You, you won't certainly die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. He's not for you. He's against you. God's own words were twisted and we have been doing the same ever since. God's people accepted and believed the lie and exchanged the truth about God, that he is good, that he has our best intentions at heart, for the lie that he's not for us, that living according to his way will be to our own loss. But what's incredible, guys, is that in this next part of Saul's story, that what happened in Saul's story has also happened in our story. God's Messiah refused to take revenge. Jesus refused to take revenge. When we said, stuff you, God, we're going to live our own lives, he, right, he rightly could have poured out his wrath, his, his just, good, fair anger on us. And this concept can be really, really hard to understand that God could rightly be angry with us. Like, we don't like it. We don't naturally like it. I've been wrestling with it, how to try and explain it. Um, but may, maybe try and understand it like this. God is the creator of the universe. He rightly could have gone, all right, well, you don't, you don't want me. Well, I made the universe, so I'll be taking that back. And, and you can just find your own world and your own universe to create. Th that'd be fair, like it's his. But we, we'd be left with nothing, not even breath. And I, I think that's what the Bible tries to get at when it says the wages of sin is death. It says God does have the right to be angry with our sin. He made us. He loves us. He made his world. He's the one who without him we wouldn't exist. But it's his world, not ours. He has the right to give and the right to take away. And yet he has not used that right yet. He is the one that we read, who on the cross we read, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And what's even worse is that even at the peak of our rejection, we were still telling God's Messiah what to do. We read in Mark 15, 31 to 32, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, let God's anointed one, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. At the height of our rejection of God, humanity was still telling God what to do, even when he was saving our lives. God's anointed one refuses to take revenge. He cares too much. And so in light of all that information, if, if we get that, if we agree that this is what God is saying through his word, I want to come back to my two questions. Do we think God is for us or against us? When you hear someone say, come follow Jesus, what's the first thing that pops to mind? I really want to challenge us tonight, guys, to think through, do we believe God has our best intentions at heart when it comes to something, even something like community? When he says to meet together regularly, do we think that's for our own good or is it just another hassle? What about when he says to be a welcoming community, 
to be one where we should have new people coming every week? Do we think that's for our own good? What would that do for spaces like church or youth if we're having new people coming? Oh, I don't know. And then it's awkward, new people. Like, do we think God is for us when he says, these places, I want new people coming in? Do we think that would wreck, wreck our plans or would it make it better? What about in, in other areas of our life? Like the list is endless. How we use our time, our money, our relationships, how we treat each other. Do we think God's call, when, when, we, when we find out and understand what it looks like to follow Jesus, when we hear that, do we think God is for us or against us? So one, do you think God is for you or against you? And two, my second question, I asked us to think through, do we think our ministry leaders, whether that be staff, wardens, parish council, team leaders, diocese, other volunteers, people we serve with, whatever, whoever, do we think they are for us or against us? And this question is much harder, isn't it? Because as I've already said, we are only far too, far too aware in 2021 just how badly Christian leaders can let us down. And, and there is a place for standing up and calling out leaders who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Absolutely. Another sermon. But, but I think on a practical note, just on a day-to-day ministry level here at Fig Tree, we need to remember that the vast majority of people, the vast majority in leadership positions at our church are there because they are for God's people, not against them. I think some of our biggest issues pop up when we start buying into the lie that because we might disagree with our leaders or or have different ways of going about things to each other, therefore that person isn't really seeking the good of ministry. I want to challenge us to think through that, but you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Pete, let's remember our leaders are for us, not against us, but then how, how how do we follow well? How do we follow well with our Christian leaders even when we disagree? How do we know they aren't going to lead us astray? And I think my answer is that we need to live out Paul's advice in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. It'll be on the screen. Yes, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some do ministry, volunteering, church work or whatever, all with the wrong motives but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. Others, well, they they preach Christ, they do gospel work, but they do it out of selfish ambition. They're just doing it for themselves. But here's Paul's challenge for us. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, whether their heart's perfectly in the right spot, because mine is always perfectly in the right spot, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I hope you picked up the sarcasm then, by the way. That's where we need to get to. That's where we can get to as a community. A community where when someone is leading, whether that be in youth or church or wherever, we think, you know what? You know what? The most important thing here is that Christ is preached, that Christ is made known. I might not totally agree with exactly how they go about it, but has Christ been preached? Yes. Like, if not, that's another conversation. But if yes, am I happy or am I sitting there disgruntled? Am I happy? Am I, in Paul's language, rejoicing in this? that people get to hear about Jesus. And church, I think that's what we've got to care about most in a senior minister. 
So where to from here? My prayer for us tonight is that through this part of God's word, we were actually reminded of our first call. Our first call is to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And secondly, to remember that he leads us by his people. Yes, by his spirit, but he leads us by his people. And so I want to leave us with the challenge. One, do we think God is for us or against us just in our day-to-day lives as we're going about trying to follow him? And two, what about with those we serve and our leaders? Do we think they are for us or against us? I'm going to pray for us and the band's going to lead us in worship. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word and this part of Scripture that just, yeah, shows how we have just always treated your anointed one, your Messiah, the same over and over again. We've, we continue, Lord, to, to buy into the lie that you are against us and not for us. Father, I just pray that you would be working on our hearts. Help us to see how you just love us so much and that you just have our best intentions at heart. Help us to wrestle with the hard questions when it comes to following leaders. Help us to wrestle with the hard questions, Lord, in terms of what it looks like to follow you well. And just be with us as we go out into this week, Lord, seeking to follow you and just to be living out that call. Amen. Thanks, Sam.